Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Uh, the participants are growing rapidly, but at the committee, we reward punctuality, so we, we will start. Uh, I'm Steve Orleans, and I'm president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Looking at the guest list tonight, I really wish we were doing this in person because there's so many old friends and great scholars, um, but obviously we can't, and we wanted to do this before Jerry reached his 91st birthday. So we were beginning to run out of time. Um, if you don't, if you need a formal introduction to Jerome Cohen, I'm not sure why you're on this call, but um, uh, he is known, I think, to all of you. Um, I should say 49 years ago, Jerry, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you entered my life. Uh, like only a few students before me and hundreds and hundreds after me, he changed my life. As Jerry always puts it, consistent with Confucian tradition, as my teacher, he educated me, he found me my first job, but he failed to find me a spouse, which a Confucian teacher should do. But ser <laughs> seriously, without Jerry, I and hundreds of others, ranging from presidents to judges, from academics to practitioners, from business leaders to heads of NGOs, would not be where they are today. His students span the globe and carry with them the wisdom and values that he has passed on to them. For all of this, Jerry, and from all of us, we cannot thank you enough. Every 10 years, I get to turn the tables on my law professor and be the questioner so today is my chance. The last time was for his 80th birthday, which of course we did in person. Much has changed and I'll try and focus the conversation today on the past 10 years, but it's impossible to start this conversation without kind of starting at the beginning. Um, one of my colleagues at Carlisle, when we would talk to new associates, associates at the firm would say, if Steve and I were the best lawyers in the United States, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't have changed professions. But in 1960, Jerry, you had what you would call the platinum experience in law. You'd been editor of the Yale Journal. You'd been clerk to two, not one, but two storied Supreme Court justices, Felix Frankfurter, and Chief Justice Earl Warren. You'd spend time in the US Attorney's Office in DC, and you'd become a professor at the University of California's School of Law. But you gave that all up to pursue a career in Chinese law. When China had just emerged from the Great Leap Forward and would enter the Cultural Revolution in six years, tell us, why? What made you do make that decision at the very beginning? You know, Steve, uh, this is a wonderful occasion. 
uh, as I listened to your tribute, I thought, I hope my obituary will be as kind. And this uh, makes me look back to the spring of 1960. It was a very exciting time. Kennedy was running against Nixon. Uh, I was a loyal Democrat. I was told before leaving Washington in 1959, don't go, we're going to win. You'll have a chance to play a role in the administration. But I wanted to have my own career. I didn't want to spend more years in Washington holding on to the coattails of some very eminent people, among whom I worked, Dean Acheson, whose biography I've just been completing now uh, by James Chase uh, was prominent among them. But I wanted to be a pioneer somehow. I never thought about China. I thought about public law. And then fate intervened. Luck is very important in life. It certainly has been in mine. And I didn't know what subject to pursue. In order, I had to get tenure. I had to write something. Uh, and then Dean Rusk came into the picture. Rusk was then president of Rockefeller Foundation. He had been assistant secretary of state under Truman and Acheson for East Asia. It had been his sad fate to preside over one of the biggest mistakes US foreign policy has made in the post-war era. That was to send our troops in the North Korea to the Chinese border after having pushed the North Koreans out of South Korea. We can talk about the implications of that later. But Rusk, having arrived at Rockefeller, decided that the nation needed better advice on China policy, that too many China specialists had been pushed out of the State Department and other branches of government by Joe McCarthy and other right-wing critics, and that a new generation had to be trained. And when our dean at Berkeley, his classmate, approached him and said, give us a chair in African law, because we were worried about what was going on in human rights in South Africa, Rusk said, who knows anything about China and law? And he later called up Bob Scalapino at Berkeley and said, Africa's important, but we think China is going to be more important. And the nation needs to have somebody who understands something about Chinese law and government. And if Berkeley Law School is interested in training somebody, we'll put up four years for his preparation. That was a remarkable thing. And if I'd had my wits about me, I should have said, I'll do it. But I wasn't a logical person to do it, as you say. But the dean asked me to find somebody, find an East German who'd studied law in Beijing, find an expert on the economy or politics of China who was willing to study law, find us a law professor 
who was Chinese and already knew about the language, culture, etc., find us somebody. And I tried hard for a month. I couldn't find anybody. And then it hit me. You want to be a pioneer? Here's a real chance to be a pioneer. And I, at that point, somebody said to me, Confucius had said, establish yourself at 30. Stand firm at 30. And I had just had my 30th birthday. And something clicked. And I said, go for it. And most people who heard what I was going to do if they were charitable thought I must be having a nervous breakdown. Why would you throw away a promising career in a country we couldn't go to? They couldn't come here. Uh, we still had very bad American feelings toward China as a result of the Korean conflict. It didn't seem logical. And the language could be a barrier. But I decided if you're going to be an academic, if you're going to stay home from the excitement in Washington that was about to take place, then really go for it. And um, I did. And I've never regretted it. It's been over 60 years. And, and my wife, Joan, who is here with me, has been with me for this whole 60-year period and been an active participant, as you know, in US-China relations in the art field. That, that pioneering spirit, let's jump ahead and talk about the pioneering spirit that took you to Beijing um, to live, not to just visit. You'd visited a number of times uh, in 1979. In fact, the invitation that we sent for this event has a picture of you, Joan, Ethan, in fact, who was visiting, uh, me, uh, Susan Orleans, and the class of kind of mid-level Beijing cadres that you and I and Owen Me, who's also in the picture, had taught law uh, to in that, in that period from 1979 to 1981. What has happened in the last 10 years, what I have always regarded this as, as a, an effort of public service, uh, that we did good and there was, you know, it was kind of a debate about it. You know, it struck me, it was very much uh, apple pie and motherhood. There wasn't much uh, negative to be said about people who went and without compensation taught these people about how to create law in China. But there's been criticism over the last 10 years of what we did. Can you talk about that criticism and how you feel about it now? Well, of course, uh, the way we've put it so far, it looks like we were impelled by the missionary spirit. But of course, uh, we have to look back at what the real situation was in 1979-80. The Chinese were hungering for knowledge of law. We were not seeking to proselytize them. American business, of course, wanted to open up China. Uh, and lawyers are the servants of business to a considerable extent. And we were building a law practice and China was a hot item. But there were other reasons in addition. The Chinese were the ones who wanted us there. Communist Chinese 
were eager to learn about law, not to protect human rights, but because they wanted to attract foreign investment, foreign technology. They wanted to modernize the country after three decades of chaos under Mao. And Deng Xiaoping wasn't afraid of multinational companies, uh, although many UN advisors told him about their depredations in Latin America and Africa and Asia. But Deng thought he could take care and keep multinational companies in check. But what he didn't have was a legal system. He had offshore oil companies from America and Canada and Europe eager to invest in China, but not if they could take foreign tax credits against their own country's tax system. That meant China had to have a creditable tax system, and it didn't have one. And China had no investment law. It had no corporation law. And the Chinese under Deng understood you had to have a legal system. Lenin understood that after the Bolshevik Revolution, and he created a European-type legal system for revolutionary Russia in order to attract British and French investment. Deng Xiaoping wanted to have a credible legal system in order to modernize the country, not only for doing business with foreigners, but for China's internal economic development. Buyers in China had to know that sellers would deliver or they would make compensation. And people had to have reliable means of settling disputes. A legal system was necessary for, for internal political and economic sociological development, as well as for external cooperation with foreigners. And the Chinese, beginning December 1978, began to ask us repeatedly for help. I remember in December 78, Oliver Oldman at Harvard, the head of our international tax program, excitedly brought me a letter that was delivered from the tax commissioner of China, our friend later, Mr. Liu Zhicheng. Harvard had invited China for 24 years to send people from their Ministry of Finance to study tax at Harvard. And they never got a response. And suddenly, 24 years later, they get a letter from Mr. Leo saying, you know, we've been, and we think we'd like to wrote back, Professor Cohen is spending his sabbatical in Hong Kong beginning January, if you're interested, get in touch with them. And they did. And after that, the investment people, the trade people, everybody in Chinese government who was told, earn foreign exchange, get us established after the chaos of the Cultural Revolution, knew they needed a passable legal system. And the problem was, how would they get it? And we became the chosen instruments. And we had to decide do we turn away that great, interesting opportunity 
or do we go for it, even though it was far from clear what the outcome would be? And we were not naive that we were going to make Democrats out of Deng Xiaoping and company. Uh, we didn't think uh, they were going to really sponsor the rule of law when they had just been resurrecting the communist system that Mao imported from Stalin. But we knew that law could nevertheless be useful. Do you Pardon? have regrets? Do you, did we do anything that you don't think was terrific? I, I don't know. I don't like to say we never made mistakes. Uh, I had a great opportunity to do many things. We not only helped companies, including some Chinese companies, to cope with international business requirements, but we also uh, took part in activities for general law reform. I went all over China in order to give lectures about the importance of the legal profession, uh, resurrecting legal education, which had been stopped for 20 years uh, under the uh, Maoist rule beginning with 1957 anti-rightist movement and culminating in the Cultural Revolution. Uh, we did a lot. Uh, did we make mistakes? That's hard to say. I, we were very busy. We tried our best uh, and we brought in increasing numbers of younger people, some of whom uh, like you, Steve, are still playing a prominent role in US-China relations in various ways, whether academic or professional uh, or NGO, etc. cetera. Uh, I don't know, can you think of something that was a mistake? We have been attacked for being the spearheads of the latest form of American missionaries going back to the 19th century, trying to convert the heathen to Christ. Uh, I think that's rather overdone. I mean, uh, we I think were that not there are those who argue we enabled the rise of China. I mean, my view of that is our, it was terrific. I think what we did, did was important, but we were always on the margins that it was decisions by Deng, whether it was decisions to re reform and open and the subsequent leaders, when it was decisions to crack down, there was not, there was nothing that we could do except express our opinions, but those were decisions which they made best based on their views of what was in China's interest. And we never, I didn't certainly expected that I would do anything but change China. I didn't expect we would change China in a fundamental way. I thought in the margins, we would lead, we would help kind of create a better legal system, which was fair to people both inside and outside the Chinese Communist Party. I suppose, I suppose today, uh, some people would say, we never should have helped China at all. Yeah. Uh, at the time, there was a right-wing, mostly Republican view that John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State under Eisenhower, perpetuated that we should stay with Chiang Kai-shek and we should do everything possible not to recognize the communist regime, not to assist it in any way, no matter what the European governments wanted to do or Japan or other countries to cooperate with China. We should have led a continuing charge, they say, against China. I thought that was unenlightened. 
I thought it wasn't going to benefit either the American people or the Chinese people. And I thought we had no choice because whatever the US chose to do, the Europeans were going ahead to cooperate with China as most of the world was, including Canada. So I had no doubts we were doing the right thing. It didn't mean we thought it would necessarily turn out the way we wanted. Uh, China's development at that time had always gone like a pendulum. Every few years it changed from radical to more conservative. And I anticipated that would continue. And indeed, that's what we've seen. And right now, unfortunately, as we consider the last 60 years, we're in a period of maximum dictatorship uh, in China. But this too shall pass just the way Chairman Mao's cultural revolution and anti-rightist movement shall pass. So we're at a low point now in judging what we did in China. And there's no doubt what we did helped the Chinese people who after Deng freed them up for their economic development, benefited enormously from foreign cooperation, not only the US, but many countries, and certainly the UN and other organizations. But if you compare the welfare of the Chinese people today with what it was under Mao's dictatorship, or the pieces of it we had to deal with when we got there in 1979 uh, to take up work, there's no doubt they are not free, but they are much better off and their prospects for freedom are enhanced by the progress they've made in economics, society, education, access to the world, despite the limitations on their freedom uh, that uh, Xi Jinping has tightened up. So I have no regrets. Uh, I think many people are better off in China today, uh, even though I sympathize with their lack of freedom and I desperately oppose what the government is doing uh, to not only the lawyers of China who fight for human rights, but especially the minority nationalities, particularly the Muslims, and the Tibetans. So it's a complex picture. You, you, I don't have any- Yeah, I think partly because we've been working and living in China for so long and we have witnessed the pendulum. I mean, I remember when I first joined you in Beijing in October of, of 79, democracy wall was up. And then one day it wasn't up and the people who had put posters up um, were taken into custody. And I remember living through Jingshan Wuran's sp spiritual pollution uh, campaign. And then obviously living through June 4th and watching the pendulum go back and forth. The question today though, is has technology and changes in the Chinese system made it so that the pendulum will not swing back again? I don't think so, uh, of course. Uh, technology works both ways. Uh, it's opened up the world in many ways that people in China, despite all the restrictions, uh, nevertheless are coming to appreciate. Uh, I think uh, the Xi Jinping repression 
will inspire a reaction. Uh, no man lives forever. Uh, dead men rise up never. And the poet Vachel Lindsay said that. And I think anyone who hasn't seen the movie, The Death of Stalin, uh, ought to see it. Everyone in China and everyone who cares about China because Xi Jinping is sowing the seeds of reaction against what he's been doing. And we'll witness that. I may not live to witness that, but I think you may live to witness that, Steve. And it's very hard to predict who could have thought that the Chinese path would lead to Xi Jinping when there were many hopeful periods, even after June 4th, 1989. Uh, the period 2003-4 was a very optimistic period. Uh, and it looked like there would be genuine rule of law, human rights protections growing in China, uh, but it changed. And when you think back to the period of the 80s that you and I experienced, Steve, which was in, retrospect, the kind of golden age for trying to bring a more civilized organization and government to China. What if Hu Yaobang, the general secretary of the party, hadn't been removed by Deng in 87? What if Zhao Ziyang hadn't handled things in a way in May uh, of uh, 1989 that led to his uh, ouster. These were enlightened, dynamic communist leaders. And I often think, what if Zhu Rongji, who was prime minister in later decade and helped China get into the WTO, if he had risen to the top spot, was that impossible to conjure up because of the nature of Chinese communism? I don't know. So I haven't lost my optimism I think what's been achieved is so far impressive. It's depressing to think that it's led at least temporarily to Xi Jinping's dictatorship, but the okay. world hasn't stopped. Yeah, I mean, no the question. Yes. The, um, you were the moving force for two of the uh, National Committee's track two dialogues. You were a moving force for the Maritime Dialogue, which we hold with the South China Seas Institute, and you were a moving force for the Human Rights and Rule of Law Dialogue that we conduct with the Human Rights Development Foundation in, in, uh, in China. The Maritime Dialogue, you know, is, is despite enormous differences in the sides, we're always able to reach some kind of agreement on certain issues, even though we still disagree on kind of what China is doing in the South China Sea. There, there's actually interesting agreement among participants who are really expert. In the human rights dialogue, where we have Xinjiang and Tibet and Hong Kong and treatment of dissidents and and treatment of the lawyers of dissidents on the agenda. Why? And you still support continuing that. Should we still be continuing that? Uh, it was a little garbled there, Steve, but I think I've got your meaning. Uh, we debate 
among the Americans who take part in the human rights dialogue. And this is not the official government to government dialogue that has taken place on occasion, but it's supposed to be tracked to whether to continue or not. Even when we have requested certain distinguished Chinese legal figures to take part and the host organization of the Chinese side has complied with our request. Usually at the meetings, those people don't dare voice their true feelings. Occasionally at tea time or during a meal, we'll get a few surreptitious remarks, but those dialogues, even though we want to continue, I enjoy them simply because it's good for my Chinese to listen to the Chinese pronunciation and listen to the substance of what they say and the content. It's linguistically beneficial, but it isn't intellectually uh, or politically, I think, uh, progressive. As you say, the South China Sea discussions, those are serious discussions. I think people say what they mean, they have a diversity of view and a respect for each other that makes it possible to say some difficult things without personally angering uh, the audience. Uh, and I think that reflects the actual situation. Xi Jinping shows no sign whatever of wanting to give on the world's demands for a greater respect for human rights. But I think the South China Sea offers some opportunity and for a realistic compromise on various issues. And certainly there ought to be ongoing conversations about trying to deal with the six or seven legal questions on which we differ on the interpretation of UNCLOSE, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. I think there's more potential flexibility there than there is when it comes to human rights, whether you talk about Xinjiang, Tibet, Hong Kong, or the repression that's very severe now of those lawyers who were adventurous and brave enough to still try to protect people's rights in China. And there are fewer and fewer of them who are not in jail, who have not been disbarred, who have not been forced to leave the country. So I think we have to look at dealing with China issue by issue. Yeah, the Elizabeth Lynch, a question just popped up from her, which I think is, is interesting. She says, You're say, you say that he's sowing the seeds of reactions against what he is doing. What will those reactions look like? Well, that's the thing, of course, we have no control over. Uh, some people think that if the party elite manages to express their dissatisfaction in a way that would bring an end to Xi's uh, dictatorship, that could lead perhaps only to a military government in China. Uh, that would not necessarily be more peaceful or more human rights sensitive. Uh, other people think, no, uh, we could see uh, some gradual improvement over time uh, if we had enlightened leadership. I don't think anybody expects 
the Chinese people to embrace political democracy uh, as they've seen various uh, variations of it in the West. And given the US performance of the last four years, uh, maybe that's disillusion uh, some of the thousands and thousands of elite members in China who have always had huge respect for the United States and what we've accomplished. So it's very unclear what would succeed Xi Jinping. My hope would be that it would be a moderate uh, leader uh, who would try to introduce more humane uh, more civilized techniques uh, in the government and open uh, up the Chinese people to more contact with the world. I have, maybe it's because I'm the eternal, as you always say, California wasn't built by pessimists. I think working on China for this long, you have to be an optimist or you give up. But I still believe I'll live to see some form of intra-party democracy that I've sat with senior officials in China and they've explained to me how the central committee uh, of the party is chosen. And they, if, you know, obviously you're talking to me and wanting to impress me that it's a democratic process, but it is not totally an undemocratic process. So in my view, ultimately when there is stalemates and probably in the post Xi era, when there are st stalemates within the party, the best way to resolve them will be through some uh, democratic process. Um, so I think we won't see it for the 1.4 billion, but will we see it for the 90 million? I, I sometimes think that we will, that, and I will live to see that. Um, you've met some of the great figures in China in the 20th century, including Zhou Enlai, Deng Xiaoping, Zhang Jiexue, um, they all knew they were talking to America's leading expert on Chinese law. Did any of them exhibit a sense of the importance of the rule of law to Taiwan and China's future? I could go back to my meeting with Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Dong uh, because uh, I had to talk to him. I had a specific goal in mind. I wanted Chiang Kai-shek to order Academia Sinica to set up a project that would provide employment for one of my most outstanding students from Taiwan, Mr. John Weiren, uh, who was a budding legal historian. And I had to appeal to Chiang Kai-shek in terms of his often voiced respect for Confucian culture and the supposedly unique contribution of the Republic of China under his reign for fostering humane Chinese values and translating them uh, into uh, public contemporary norms. And he proved responsive to that argument. And subsequently, Academia Civica did invest in learning about Chinese legal history. And John Wei Ren happily is still, although retired, working earnestly to tell us more about the Qing dynasty and its legal traditions and the extent to which they try to show respect 
for what today we would call uh, human rights. With Joe and Lai, it was a different situation. Uh, we had a four-hour talk at dinner, drinks before dinner, and John Fairbank, who was really the honoree for the dinner given by his old friend Joe and Lai for him, I was a kind of party cratcher brought in uh, near the last minute. But uh, Joe and Lai did his homework for each guest. He knew what I had worked on. Uh, he knew what I was hoping for. And uh, he said to me with a somewhat bemused air, I understand you've done uh, many books on the Chinese legal system. And he said it with the air of somebody who thought knowledgeably that I had made more of Chinese law than China had. <laughs> uh, he thought perhaps I must be very naive. This was uh, June 72. The Cultural Revolution uh, had only recently uh, ended its worst period. And here comes a foreigner who says, gee, I'm really studying the Chinese legal system. He must have thought I had air between the ears, but he was very genial and a serious person. And we had some good political and international law uh, discussions. With uh, Deng Xiaoping. But by the I, way, let me ask you about Joe. And at that point, had the criminal process in the PRC 1949 to 66, been translated into Chinese, the book that you had written that we used when I was your student? Uh, I only know that there were Chinese legal experts whom I met in the 70s who were familiar with that book. Uh, they were more familiar, the international law experts, with the book that Professor Cho Hong Da of Taiwan and I produced in 1974 about China and international law. People's China uh, and international were, law. Pardon? I just gave the title, People's China and International Law. It sat on my book, it sits on my book shelf to this day. <laughs> well, I'm glad to see that it's still widely quoted and uh, provides a lot of useful background so many years later for analyzing contemporary problems, not the least of which is the legal status of Taiwan and the diplomatic relations involving Taiwan and the right of Beijing to use force uh, to annex Taiwan. Uh, these problems have not gone away. Yeah, and then you were gonna go on to then uh, to um... You had covered Chiang Kai-shek. Joe and Lai. Joe and Lai. Joe and Lai. Yeah. And then uh, at the end of December 1977, uh, I had accompanied Ted Kennedy and 11 members of his family on their first visit to China. And uh, we had to work hard to get an interview with Deng Xiaoping. Uh, he was only just coming back to power. He was suffering from the flu. But after many days of elaborate negotiation and scheming to let the Chinese know how important it was 
for Kennedy to have the opportunity to meet Donald. We did have an hour and a half meeting. Uh, I didn't have the opportunity to interrogate Dung. I was seated right behind him and Kennedy, and I barely took part uh, in what was a preliminary sort of feeling out goodwill uh, discussion. And uh, I, I was impressed by Dung's attitude, but he wasn't feeling well. He was low in energy. Uh, and we had a rather broad agenda. So I don't regard that meeting, uh, given my own interests, as having been as successful or as important as meetings with uh, Joe and Lai and uh, John Kai-shek and Madam John, who was uh, essential uh, to any useful interchange uh, with uh, John Kai-shek himself. The, um... A few people, including your son, Ethan, ha has asked, Ethan, <laughs> it has been said, Jerome A. Cohen is a frank friend of China. Uh, my question is, do you think this statement is accurate? And one of our uh, public intellectuals, a fellow at the Council uh, on Foreign Relations, Fang Zheng, quotes from, your, from uh, Fareed Zakaria's interview of Cui Tiankai, where he quoted, where Fareed quoted you extensively on Hong Kong, and Ambassador Tsui then says, Jerome Cohen is an old friend of ours. I wish him well. I've not seen him for quite a while because of the pandemic. Hopefully I could talk to him in person very soon. Does not mean what he says is always right. I think the fundamental issues with regard to Hong Kong is very clear. What do you think about those comments and about your well, being a great friend? I'm sure I'm not the only one who is specialized in Chinese studies who has trembled at, the, uh, at hearing this phrase, you're an old friend of China. Uh, that's, of course, part of the Chinese communist charm uh, in uh, taking you in, trying to soften your criticism, etc. But I, I do feel that over the years, I've been a friend of the Chinese people. Uh, I do feel that uh, in our work, whether academic or professional or political, uh, we've always tried to have the interests of the Chinese people, from our point of view at least, uh, in uh, priority position. Uh, I don't feel I'm a friend of China in the sense that the term is used to describe some people uh, I would regard as just, uh, to use communist terminology, running dogs of the regime, uh, people who just parrot the Chinese communist line. Uh, 10 years ago, when I was 80, the South China Morning Post ran a long story and honor my birthday, and I like the way they put it, Beijing's friendly critic. And uh, in recent years, I don't think the leadership in China thinks I'm so friendly, uh, but that's not my problem. Uh, it's uh, the problem of their behavior. Uh, I think to understand my attitude toward China, 
You know, Steve, I've coined this simplistic formula called the four C's, not S-E-A-S, but the letter capital C. Because in looking as everybody is now looking at nauseum about what Biden's China policy should be, I think four C's sums it up, including the difficulties involved for having a balanced approach to China. The first C we have to emphasize more than we have, and that's the need for cooperation. And the list of issues on which I think there would be increasing support in the United States for cooperation with China is necessarily expanding beyond climate, beyond nuclear proliferation, including the complex technology and cyber, et cetera, and space law, and all the evolving questions, we need to cooperate with China on critical issues and hope Beijing will feel the same way. At the same, the second C is competition. We can't avoid competition. We have competition even with friendly allied powers with respect to business and economics. Uh, and certainly we're going to have competition continuing for soft power uh, in the world's opinion. Uh, competition is healthy and it's good. The third C is criticism. Uh, I'm a great advocate of criticism, including self-criticism. Uh, I don't mind when the Chinese government occasionally uh, condemns the US uh, government uh, for certain uh, failures to protect human rights in the United States. I think if it's honest, it's, it's good for us and we should be aware of it. But of course, we shouldn't resist criticizing the People's Republic for many of the violations of human rights uh, that have taken place. So criticism has to continue uh, and has to be accepted by both sides. The final C, and here's a word that many people think should be buried, is containment. But I think uh, we have to bolster uh, the countries on China's periphery that feel the need for protection, assurance, at least to preserve their neutrality, if not to follow the US foreign policy. We have to make sure we take steps to contain any expansionist instincts on the part of the PRC. And that's not an easy job. That's what this Indo-Pacific uh, uh, development of a realliance system being uh, developed again is all about. Now, it's easy to say we have to have this balanced approach. The problem is, uh, can you really get cooperation uh, if you're also trying to take steps toward containment. Uh, if you have a government in China that can't stand criticism, uh, which hurts their attempt to have soft power in the world, are they gonna cooperate with respect to some of the issues that we must have cooperation on? And what are right, the rules gonna be for competition? Yeah, I mean- Everybody I think... says, of course, we have to have new rules of the game. 
Yeah. And that's much easier said than done. Yeah. I'm, I think I agree with the first three of those four. The containment has a lot of implications that I think are wouldn't be helpful for the other three and, and ultimately is not the way we should be approaching China. But we don't have time for a full conversation. The Ash Center came out with a 10-year polling survey showing a high degree of Chinese public support of the current Chinese regime, regime that would be the envy of most governments in the West. How do you square that with your view, pessimistic view, negative view of the regime? How in the world could we have an accurate poll of what Chinese people think when they go to jail if they express what they think uh, in public? It's ridiculous to think that we have access to the free expression of opinion on the part of Chinese in the circumstances in which the Chinese government controls all incoming information in which it creates huge amounts of fake information through the millions of people it employs and through its vast propaganda. How in the world would the Chinese people be able to express themselves in a way that's meaningful to those of us who are not subject to those restraints? I don't take that seriously at all, but I do understand there's a new generation in China that emphasizes nationalism. The government has been beating the drums for that. And these people are proud of what the Chinese people have achieved. And they're aware, very aware of the negative aspects of American government, bourgeois democratic governments in various countries of the world. So you have a combination of things that makes it understandable they should tell any pollers how enthusiastic they are. I think Xi Jinping has the support of uh, most people in China. His anti-corruption efforts and the propaganda I've mentioned, controls that they have over information, uh, make it almost inevitable uh, that a rising uh, power uh, should be uh, as nationalistic as they are. It's a dangerous situation that even the Chinese government itself on occasion has to restrain rising nationalism. I think older people in China, 50 years and above, uh, have a less zealous uh, attitude but all these things are quite speculative uh, when you have a regime that so uh, suffocatingly controls its own public opinion. I, th I think on the media control in that aspect, you're right. As to the inaccuracy of polling data, I think a lot of people who, who look at this wouldn't agree with you, that the polling data is actually accurate and people are willing to speak to pollsters or the Chinese equivalent of pollsters in an honest way. And in fact, I have spoken with provincial level officials who do polling to understand what the Lao Bai Sing are thinking. So my guess is they trust that polling and they're polling on specific issues that, that they, they wanna better understand what people are thinking. So I'm, 
I agree that it's manipulated in the sense that the, you know, media is controlled, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible apparatus, but the polling data itself actually may be uh, accurate and this enormous support of the Chinese government is actually true. And that if there were an election, uh, you know, the folks in government would likely be elected. But that's, you know, if I controlled all the newspapers and all the televisions and the internet, I think I could get elected whatever I wanted to. So I don't know if that's a, a truly relevant uh, analysis. Um, Who would the opposing candidate be? Right, yes. Um, a few people have asked what Madeline Ross has asked. Um, have you made significant errors in your assessment of China over the years? And if so, what are they? And how have they informed your thinking about China now? Well, that goes back to what we talked about earlier uh, in terms of what did we anticipate would come out of our efforts. Uh, it was always uh, open-ended. Any student of Chinese politics knows that uh, so much of circumstance is what we might say adventitious. A lot depends on the circumstances or luck. Uh, I'm not happy as I indicate every day with what's going on under Xi Jinping. But I don't know that I can say I'm disappointed uh, I'm not surprised, uh, perhaps, at the severity uh, of his repression increasing, uh, but I don't know. Uh, I suppose I never had any great expectations. Uh, we were hoping piecemeal, bit by bit, to improve the lives of the Chinese people. Uh, I think that has happened to a considerable extent. Uh, many people, including these wonderful human rights lawyers who've been suffering torture and imprisonment and expulsion and disbarment, they could lead a happy life in China. If you keep your nose clean, just go to work, do your thing, keep out of politics, make money. You know, many people have compromised on that in China, and the masses of people don't even think they're compromising. And if we look at analogies of our own country, do we worry about what the elite thinks about politics? But because of our system, we also have to worry about what the masses think. I think in China, there may be a lot of doubt, criticism, unhappiness with Xi Jinping among the educated intellectuals, academics, even many government officials, some even in the legal system. These people are informed and wishing for a better life than Xi Jinping gives them. But most people probably, you know, uh, as long as uh, they do a little better economically and they don't run into local problems, uh, they're happy enough. Uh, and we have the problem here, as I say, of how do we deal with the American masses? And maybe we should be uh, trying to meet their needs to a greater extent. 
than we have. And that's part of the turmoil that we're experiencing now. Hmm. Um, we're uh, Let me tell you, we're going to, because there's one of the benefits of Zoom is we can run over. And we're going to run over because I have lots of more questions. If, if I'm not exhausting you, Jerry, we'll... Uh, you know, we'll continue a few minutes past the appointed closing time and if people need to, I see nobody has, did, our audience remains enormous um, and nobody is disconnecting. So if they wanna stay on and listen to a few more questions, I'm happy to continue for, why don't we say another 15 minutes, Jerry, is that okay? Of course. Um, what was your most difficult moment in China over the last 50 years? <sighs> Most difficult moment, that's a, that's a good one. Uh, I suppose uh, after Tiananmen, the June 3rd, 4th, 1989 slaughter near uh, Tiananmen Square, the collapse of the whole foreign investment cooperative movement with China, uh, for I figured it would go on at least three years uh, was certainly a difficult moment, especially since I felt I had to speak out uh, against what Deng and company had done. Uh, this meant the end of that wonderful period of the 80s, which despite halting progress really represented progress. Uh, that was a difficult period. But again, I felt patience is required. Uh, one has to adjust for the immediate, make the best of the situation. During that period, I really uh, discovered Vietnam. And I found an opportunity to introduce many of the companies I had been working with uh, to Vietnam, which was just opening up a decade after the PRC had opened up. And I found fascinating insights in Vietnam into the Chinese legal system, which uh, quietly the Vietnamese were building upon, translating Chinese works, trying to improve Chinese uh, legal provisions to attract foreign investment. I sort of made up for disappointment about what was going on in China. And having lived through the period 1960 to 78, uh, I felt better equipped than many of my former students who had come out of law school in the late 70s and only knew the hopeful decade of the 80s. I think many of them took it very hard. But I felt China would come back. Deng Xiaoping's Southern Tour in early 92 uh, began to embody that. And we soon saw a greater need and opportunity for business law in China uh, than before, uh, even though there was little progress with respect to the protection of human rights. So I don't know, uh, maybe I'm an inveterate optimist and uh, I just have felt uh, that I should continue to support China. It reminds me a little bit in uh, 1950, the state of Massachusetts passed a law 
requiring uh, all uh, academic people who are involved with state support to take an oath to support the Constitution. And when Harvard's leading professor of constitutional law was asked, are you going to be willing to support the Constitution? He quipped, why shouldn't I? It supported me all my life. And I have felt uh, indissolubly linked to China. And uh, I don't think there's reason in the long run uh, for despair or disappointment. Uh, along the way, inevitably, there are bumps in the road. Uh, but I think we've seen immense progress in China, even though that progress itself has become a challenge to us. Yeah. What do you think your greatest accomplishment has been? Well, I suppose it's the students from Taiwan, Hong Kong, and China uh, who have taken the opportunity to study abroad about the legal system and who have returned to their own societies to play a role. Taiwan is the outstanding example because lawyers in Taiwan, for better or worse, have played an important role in leadership politics, and they continue. And when I say lawyers, I mean people who have been trained in law, even though they may never have practiced as professional uh, lawyers like President Tsai uh, herself. And certainly in Hong Kong, when you look at the distinguished academics there and you look at some members of the legal profession, uh, that gives me a feeling of pride and a feeling that there are, as they say in Beijing, revolutionary successors. That uh, when I leave the scene, you have a lot of people who will carry on the cause. And in the mainland, although politics has precluded uh, law people uh, by and large from entering the political system and even to some extent the government system, there are many people there who have studied in the United States as well as elsewhere in the West who are still motivated by the values of human rights trying to protect uh, individuals against arbitrary government who know that torture is evil and that uh, incommunicado interrogation is evil and that we are still struggling, of course, to wipe out those evils in the United States, but they too are working. And even today, there is legal progress in China uh, in the business field, but even with respect to legal institutions, even though it's often more on paper uh, than it is to practice, uh, even though when they now publicize millions of court decisions, they're restricted on what court decisions will be publicized and to what extent. But there is progress going on. And that gives me some hope that uh, uh, things, 
I can hear Joan in the background. Joan thinks I have silenced opinion. <laughs> the, 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 you were breaking up a little bit, so I was slow in getting the question. Um, just just uh, two more questions. Um, you know, besides obviously arguing that I should never have been admitted to Harvard Law School, what would you do differently if you could, if there is one thing you could rewrite, um, what would it be? Well, I don't want to appear smug. Uh, there were opportunities to do other things. Certainly, I think you'll remember, Steve, uh, you were a young lawyer in the State Department Legal Advisor's Office when Jimmy Carter got elected. And uh, you called me one day in January 77, quite excited. And you said, they're going to name you legal advisor to the State Department. And I said, are you serious? I've heard nothing about that. And you said, I've just talked to somebody who's come out of the White House and he's told me that. Well, if I had been certain that's what I wanted to do, I could have mobilized support from Carter's team and from Ted Kennedy for whom I had worked for a decade in bringing him around on China policy. And if I had any regret about a career change or addition, maybe it's that, but I didn't, I didn't move. I just, to some extent, have always felt that fate will determine, just keep plugging, do what you think you should be doing, and uh, somehow life will take care of you. I don't have any other professional regrets. Uh, it would have been fun to join the Kennedy administration and work with Nick Katzenbach or Bill Bundy or many of the other people I knew in the late 50s. Uh, who knows where that would have led but I was happy sitting in the basement of our home on San Luis Road in Berkeley, studying my characters and trying to learn to speak and read Chinese. Um, so I don't really have any, you have to look at age 90. I get up every day and I'm excited about what the internet is gonna tell me just happened. And I wanna blog too much instead of working on my memoirs. To be 90 and be that interested in what you've chosen as a life's career. I don't know many lawyers who've had that opportunity. So there are many roads to socialism, Khrushchev once said, just before socialism collapsed. Um, I have to another question because it's from another member of your family. So you'll have two of your three sons having asked the question. This one's from Peter, um, who says, you've made a compelling argument about modernization of Chinese law has been good for China, but has it been good for the United States? Well, certainly uh, the modernization of Chinese law has enabled the very substantial cooperation uh, between the United States and China and between China and many other countries. And it has been not only good for the Chinese people, as well as the Chinese government, but it's been good for the rest of us in terms of encouraging exchange, understanding, 
uh, business profitability, American consumers benefit uh, from China's economic prowess. Uh, I think uh, the legal system has been very helpful uh, in terms of economic business cooperation. And it's been helpful in terms of China's assimilation uh, into many aspects of the world that require cooperation that we take for granted. Uh, it's been imperfect, but the US development and use of law has also been imperfect as much of the world will tell us. So I, I don't think you can have uh, too much all out 100% uh, criticism of any government. You have to recognize the limits of humanity and uh, the circumstances that are so complex. Uh, I think the legal system that's developed in China to a considerable extent uh, has been beneficial compared to the terrible chaos that existed uh, in the mid 70s uh, after Mao's death in 76, especially. The, um, I see, by the way, Don Clark posted the Amazon link to People's China and International Law. So if staff can put that in the chat, that would be, that would be fun for anybody who wants to still buy it. Uh, Yujia Chen has asked, when can we expect Jerry's memoirs? <laughs> well, I'd like to see many of our younger colleagues uh, take up the daily blogging assignments that some of them do engage in. Uh, I'd like to put aside more time for the memoirs, but I am making progress. Uh, I'm currently in the summer of 19, uh, 1952, having spent a Fulbright year in Europe, having uh, gotten mixed up with the Algerian revolution against French colonialism. Uh, I'm about to enter Yale Law School. Uh, it's getting closer to the time in Washington that people will find, I think, interesting. Uh, and then I'll get back to establish yourself at 30. I've already published several chapters uh, in the post-1960 period, including one about the year Ezra Bogle and I spent together in uh, Hong Kong 1963-4. And that uh, reminds me of something I wanted to say at the outset before starting to answer questions. Uh, Steve and I had agreed last year when he suggested the idea of a 90th birthday uh, program that we should include Ezra Vogel because Ezra was only a month or two younger than I. We were close friends in the 60s. We shared refugees who were very helpful in helping us understand the China that prohibited us from coming in. And, uh, uh, I thought that uh, we should say something uh, and re recalling Ezra's huge contributions and uh, regret that he couldn't be with us uh, tonight. We did a program, Jan hosted a program uh, with a lot of Ezra's former students and colleagues last week, which, oh. was, you know, which was very nice. Um, last question. 
which is what should President Biden do about the issues that you care about in US-China relations? Well, that covers quite a stretch ranging from Xinjiang uh, to Taiwan. I feel Taiwan is the ultimate question. It's the biggest danger to Sino-American relations and world peace. Uh, I like the fact that uh, Biden is continuing to have uh, higher level contacts with people uh, in the Taiwan government. I think it's important, even if we can't have Taiwan be a full participant in the traditional international relations diplomatic uh, regime, that we develop uh, innovative new ways of making sure Taiwan is an increasingly active participant. I think we're witnessing in various ways in the relations between Taiwan and a number of countries an upgrading of uh, those countries' appreciation of Taiwan's importance. And I'm glad Biden hasn't backed away uh, from uh, the late Trump policy of increasing the level of contact with Taiwan. I'd like to see especially a lifting of the traditional State Department uh, rule against allowing Taiwan's president and vice president and foreign minister uh, to come and speak at NYU or the National Committee or the Council on Foreign Relations or any public forum. I have never said they should uh, have the highest Taiwan officials go to the White House uh, or even address the Congress. Uh, but I do feel we need to know more about Taiwan. We have to have access to their leaders and they have to have access to us. And we have to make it clear to Beijing that despite all the reasons that militate against US attempt to protect Taiwan against any militant aggression, that we would respond. And that's a huge question uh, given the last 20 years of American diplomatic history uh, and our relationships with Taiwan, China, and uh, other countries. With respect to Xinjiang. But Jerry, can I just, on this Taiwan question, let me just stop you there. When did the Chinese military buildup really start? When did China begin to spend a lot more money on uh, as a percentage of GDP, it, it, it exceeded its GDP growth. When Li Donghui, after Li Donghui visited uh, Cornell, given that, given, yeah. given, we really think the Chinese officials, that Taiwan officials should come to the United States and speak at NYU or elsewhere and, and do not in transit visits, but actually come and, is it worth the risk? Is that good for the people on Taiwan? Uh, I don't regard that risk as great as having high Taiwan officials or address the Congresses. Uh, whereas listening to uh, the leaders of a foreign government with which we do not maintain diplomatic relations, that to me doesn't challenge 
the two China policy as much as the more official uh, contacts. Okay, you're gonna go on to Xinjiang. I wanted to say a word about Xinjiang because uh, this of course is very much the uh, question. I, I took part in a very good debate today with human rights organizations over this question of uh, genocide and to what extent uh, the US, the UK and other states should charge China with genocide. Is that a fair reading of the Genocide Convention? And if so, what follows from that? And of course, in practical terms, what's coming up is uh, the question of the Winter Olympics in China. Uh, and I initially thought uh, it would make sense for the US and other countries simply to boycott. But I've been convinced since then that it's unrealistic. And I think the administration has already dismissed that. But it leaves open the possibility of participation in the Winter Olympics in ways that will remind the world of what the nature of the Chinese government is and the atrocities that it is committing uh, in Xinjiang, uh, Tibet, and the repression of human rights generally. So that's a, a very uh, hot issue, of course. South China Sea? South China Sea, uh, I think the Chinese really fogged one bias in uh, developing these uh, uh, non-islands often uh, into military bases through the use of construction. I think the US attention was diverted uh, elsewhere by our involvement in the Middle East, etc. But I do think there is room for compromise on various issues. One of the most dangerous issues, of course, uh, is uh, does the US or any other country have a right to conduct military surveillance in the exclusive economic zone offshore China? Uh, according to uh, the law of the sea, uh, we do. China vehemently takes the minority position. We've recently had a fuss over, uh, should the United States notify China and seek its permission if it wants to peacefully settle, set military vessels through the territorial sea, that is within 12 miles uh, of the Chinese coastline. Here, the Chinese again assert the minority position because China says, if you want to send a military vessel in our uh, territorial sea, you've got to tell us and ask for our approval. Uh, well, that's not the dominant law of the sea, but I sympathize here with the Chinese position. And I'm wondering whether it might be possible through negotiations to have some horse trading where we accept the Chinese position about peaceful uh, entry uh, uh, into innocent passage, so-called in the territorial sea of China, if they will accept uh, are monitoring what takes place in China from the further offshore exclusive economic zone. Uh, the chance for that may be enhanced by the fact 
the PRC itself, as it expands its navy, is finding it convenient to spy on others from the exclusive economic zone offshore those countries. Uh, Chinese attitudes toward international law change with Chinese development and circumstances, just as the attitudes of other countries do. So I'm just using that as an example of the kind of discussion. There may be room, there may even be room for developing peaceful uses of those uh, areas where China has now developed military bases that put us uh, at a certain disadvantage we didn't previously suffer. Uh, I think there are so many pieces around uh, the South China Sea that there's got to be some room uh, for negotiation. Uh, it's much harder to have a negotiation uh, over Xinjiang perhaps or Tibet or Hong Kong. But even there, a new leadership in China could do a lot to ease tensions with the rest of the world. Let me close with, with looking at my birthday greeting for you, which I wrote in, uh, on July 1, 1980, um, which, which um, was at your 50th birthday. Um, which if anybody, if, if uh, Jason is still on this, he's free to post the entire thing, but it was basically, it ended wishing you, at, thanking you for all you've done, you know, expressing my respect, admiration, affection, and gratitude to Professor Cohn, appropriate for his 50th birthday. Um, but then I asked at the very end, can China stand another 50 years? So you've got another good 10 years left before this birthday wish can be fully, fully, uh, uh, fully. Well, uh, uh, allow me just to say one thing in closing, Steve, about the satisfactions of studying China for so many decades. Uh, in a way, Art Buchwald summarized it all during the Cultural Revolution, where he had a very funny column allegedly reporting what Mao said to Liu about Deng in front of Zhou, etc. And then he said, I thought after that I had a stomach full of China watching. But the thing about China watching is an hour later, you're hungry for more. <laughs> It's a perfect way for to end. We are hung. We've gone only twenty five minutes over. Uh, we're hungry for more. Uh, we'll have to do this for uh, maybe we'll do it for a ninety in in a few months for a ninety first birthday. So we're not ten years away. We're only we're less than nine and a half. So thank you so much. It's, it's been an honor of a lifetime thank to you. have you as a professor and as a friend. Thanks, Steve. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.